electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to the Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort and Julia Borston with us today for the feed. Tech is trying to claw back some early losses after a sharp drop following that hotter than expected inflation number now at the highest level since 82. Ten year actually has gotten back above 2 percent for the first time since August of 19 and financials and energy are leading as a result. Uh, Disney does bring the magic back. Uber delivers while Twitter appears to be the only buyer of its stock. We've got you covered on all the earnings movers of the morning. Morning. And then the world's richest crypto billionaire looks to diversify. The CEO of Binance is going to join us after announcing this big investment in Forbes. We're going to start, though, with Disney. The stock popping today after the company posted a beat on the top of the bottom line. Got some strength in streaming. That was a big theme this quarter, adding nearly 12 million subs in that time. Julia talked with Bob Chapek yesterday, who reaffirmed the company's subscriber goal. We're reaffirming our guidance of 230 to 260 as we gave last December. That's been our target, that continues to be our target. And really what's driving is what we've said, great content. We'll have more franchise added content on our big franchises added this fiscal year, double what we had in 21. And that goal is right above Netflix's current sub number of 222 million. Uh, Julia, uh, B of A, uh, Jessica Referlick calls the results a Hulk smash. I think once you fold in all of the park results as, as well. Yeah, and really remarkable looking at the strength of the parks. The fact that the parks had a stronger quarter than they did in 2019, really surprising there. And that was due to a couple of factors. Prices are higher and the fact that they now have these add-on services. So people are at the parks can spend a little bit extra to cut the line and go to the front of the line. And also people are just spending more when they're at the parks. So, so I was pretty surprised by that. And then you have to wonder how the parks and the Disney Plus streaming service and all of these things can play together to this larger question of bringing the brands from Disney into the metaverse. I had to mention, John, just to tease you, because I know you're such a metaverse skeptic here, that he's bullish about the opportunity to bring all their franchises and characters into Web3. Yeah, he was bullish. Well, Disney, I should say, was bullish about bringing their franchises and characters into video games. And lots of people seem to be doing that, but just not Disney itself. So I wonder uh, how that actually plays out for them, if this actually ends up being different. Um, and, and this whole issue of people spending more and that helping earning, I wonder whether the attempts to battle inflation will actually hurt these effects that we see in so many companies where people are spending more. As interest rates rise, you know, do people, are, are people more he hesitant to, to finance certain things, including travel, do they feel less willing to splurge? Mm -hmm. there's, there's no answer to that, D, but uh, it's something yeah. I wonder.
Yeah, you're referring to the number of people who went to parks. It wasn't at the levels that we saw in 2019, but they are spending more there. We've seen a similar theme with the ride-sharing companies. Julia, back to the streaming question. I know you chatted earlier in Squawk Box about this. Um, just sort of comparing that subs number to Netflix's number. Um, yeah, it was a surprise on the upside, but there's other things in that, like the bundling as well as international, some freebies. So I wonder, is there any thought out there that maybe Disney should be growing faster? This shouldn't be you know, a surprise. It could be expected because they are coming from a lower base. Well, they are coming from a lower base, but so many uh, of these things and so much of that growth is pegged to when they launch new shows. So there is an expectation that growth will be very much towards the back half of this year when it comes to subscriptions because they are adding more content, like new Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah. show that's going to be and launching it, in May. But I think you, you raise a good point about the bundling. I mean, they, they did add more ESPN Plus subscribers than anticipated by over 2 million, but there was some question of how many of the Disney Plus subscribers were thanks to being part of a lower mm -hmm. cost bundle. But if they can get people to subscribe to the bundle, even if it is at an overall lower cost, there are still advantages because that bundle is expected to reduce churn. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, thought, I thought this was all supposed to be against the old cable model. Carl, I, wasn't bundle like a dirty word. Are we back to the dirty bundles? Good point. Right? Like, I mean, it's like, oh, well, you know, they might not have explicitly wanted this, but we folded it in and maybe they didn't notice and maybe they'll get to like it over time. Everything that sounds old is new awfully again. familiar. It's either vindication for the old school cable players, one of which owns this network, I should, I should mention, or it's dangerous territory for these, <laughs> you know, digital streamers who are supposed to be bringing purity to content. Well, a lot of us are old enough to remember when the words a la carte were new and interesting. And wow, you could actually divide this up into individual services. Uh, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, uh, Dee, how, how much we've come full circle on that? I guess the difference maybe is that it's easier to cancel, a little bit tougher <laughs> to cancel those old school bundles. Yeah. Let's get to Uber, guys. Um, reporting after the bell last night, and the stock is jumping this morning after the company posted a beat on revenue for the fourth quarter. Uber pulling in net income of $892 million thanks to unrealized gains from investments, of which it has many in the ride-sharing and transportation world. The company also reaching an all-time high for active users, 118 million. Uber CEO Dara Khosra Shahi noting mobility is already bouncing back from Omicron headwinds that hit the business in late December. And that is quite the opposite of what we heard from Lyft earlier this week. The company warning that Omicron is a risk to its first quarter results. You really got to sift through uh, this quarter, as you often do with Uber, because of all of those investments. Yes, Dara Khosra Shahi he was optimistic that sort of the company is past Omicron hurdles, but the outlook was still weaker than the street expected. So it is still they are expecting it to weigh um, on the results for the current quarter. But I guess, guys, I don't know how much has actually changed. Yes, we are returning. People are going out. They're taking Ubers and Lyfts again. But we know that it sort of goes back and forth. And I guess the long term question, John, is. Have habits changed? Are people going to go back to ride sharing in the same way? You know, I've got even more questions than that. I'm not sure what Uber is anymore. I mean, I used to think it was a ride hailing company with a delivery business. Now maybe it's a delivery company with a ride hailing business. And Julia, I find it concerning that Uber is not anywhere near being the solution to Peloton's problem. And just for context, Peloton is talking about how they want to outsource more delivery and more logistics. They were, oh, we took too much of that in-house. Uber's been talking about Uber Freight for a long time. 
Uber has been working on solving the last mile problem uh, for a long time, apparently. Why aren't they able to get in here with this, where mm -hmm. it's a pretty big customer that has a problem that a lot of others, in fact, uh, are, are probably having too? What, what is Uber? Well, I think you make a really good point, John, but I would also say on the flip side, the fact that delivery grew 34% indicates that even as Omicron continues to weigh on some of those overall mobility results, you still have the fact that it seems like food delivery is just here to stay. Food delivery is not going to be something that was really a pandemic trend. And the fact that Uber has continued to grow those food delivery numbers does seem optimistic about the future of that business. But I also found it interesting that so much, uh, I think it was 13% of gross bookings were airport drives. So what does that say about the potential to ramp up that business? And maybe people, as they get out and about more and travel more, mm -hmm. will be relying more on Uber. So some, some interesting numbers buried in there, D. John, I've got an answer for you. In one word, what is Uber? It's a conglomerate. I mean, there is one slide that they always show in their earnings that are all of their investments in other companies. And it's essentially a conglomerate of play on all of these other companies that, by the way, have beat Uber at its own game along the way. Didi, Aurora, Grab, markets that, or, or sectors that Uber has tried to go into. So in that sense, if that's what you want, that's fine. But you might also argue that it also has a very, you know, unprofitable Food delivery and mobility business. It's a conglomerate made up of, you know, things including Didi and Grab, which are also conglomerates. What is it? Just turtles all the way down? <laughs> it's um, the Masasan Empire, right? I think we've called it that. Yeah, in the past. but so I'll, I don't know. I'll pass lead back to SoftBank. Where's the beef? Uh, turning to Twitter, it misses across the board on earnings, revenue, and daily active users for the company's first report since CEO Parag Agrawal took over from Jack Dorsey. Stock hanging on barely by its fingernails to some gains this morning, really about flat at this point. Twitter also announcing it will buy back $4 billion in stock, and it's got an ambitious goal of hitting 315 million monetizable daily active users by the end of 2023. That remains in place. The impact from iOS changes, just modest, unlike Meta uh, expects. Twitter writing in its shareholder letter that retooling revenue products in light of the changes took time but helped to reduce the impact to the company. Um, Carl, I'm starting to wonder whether I care about Twitter, given that its market cap is less than half of Snaps and um, you know, this monetizable daily act. I, I don't know. I mean, it, not a lot of movement there. And uh, you know, the, the innovation is questionable. We've always said it's a niche service, guys. Uh, it's a niche service that caters to people who need uh, information at extremely high frequencies. Uh, you know, we're learning over time how large that population is, Julia. Uh, stock, you know, isn't performing that badly. It did it this morning got back to the uh, early part of January levels. Uh, it is remarkable, not just the size of the buyback on total market cap, more than 10%, but also their stubbornness in not backtracking on this long-term uh, DAU target. Well, I'll tell you why they're not backtracking, Carl, and it comes down to the fact that they released some new numbers for the first time ever about new signups. This is something that Twitter hasn't done before. So they said they've seen 25% year-over-year growth in new account signups or reactivation and 35% year-over-year increase in daily signups. Those are m meaningful numbers, especially 
considering that they did not see anything close to that in terms of overall user growth in the quarter. I, I spoke to Ned Siegel about this and I said, how are you growing those signups so fast and why is it not having an impact on your overall numbers? And they said they wanted to share those numbers because they think that it will have an effect in this quarter and quarters, uh, quarters ahead. So I think that they are much more optimistic now about user growth potential than they were in previous quarters. And a lot of that comes down to the pace of change. Deirdre, they've been making yeah. so many changes to make it easier to use and onboard people. So yes, maybe this will never be anywhere close to the size of a Facebook or Instagram, but they are making progress. Julia, uh, John has gotten me all philosophical now. What's Uber? <laughs> what is Twitter? <laughs> is it this innovative growth company that's going to release new products that really, you know, evolve with its audience? Or is it, you know, kind of relying on financial engineering? What was the most exciting part about this release? Was it the buyback? I think, well, I think the, the buyback was definitely the most exciting part of this release for oh, investors. No. <laughs> I would say for me, the most exciting part was the, the new signups and what that could indicate for the future. But I think fundamentally, it is a smaller type of product in terms of the total universe than, say, a Facebook You is. know, Carl, what this is starting to remind me of? Twitter's starting <laughs> to remind me of Yahoo. Really? Like, um, Ouch. You mean it. with a ton of different verticals or uh, in, what, in what sense? Um, you know, product innovations that, that aren't quite that innovative don't really uh, seem to latch on. And then the wheels end up just spinning and then they move on to the next thing. Leadership changes, uh, kind of unclear whether they're going to take any big swings. Um, th that's dangerous. They, they got to not remind me of Yahoo in two years uh, unless it wants to be bought by a <laughs> large, slow growth telco. Well, we're going we're gonna to find out. Are they big swings? I mean, buying back, you know, 10% of your market cap is a bit of a swing. It's just not involving uh, a huge technology or competitor. But time, time will tell, as we, as we like to say. Still to come this morning, the world's richest crypto billionaire is making a major investment in Forbes. Uh, the CEO of Binance is with us next. As the markets have taken a leg lower, as the 10-year did revisit that 2% mark, tech checks getting started. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back. I uh, want to mention Uber stock halted news pending. You can see uh, it was up about three and three quarter percent uh, ahead of that on earnings. So we will follow that 
as well. Also want to talk now about uh, Twilio, that cloud communications platform posting a massive revenue beat in its latest earnings. Sales hitting nearly $843 million, up 54% year over year. Also reporting shallower losses in Q4 than the street expected, offering upbeat guidance for the current quarter. Shares surged this morning on those results, up 10%. Though, D, I mean, a 10% surge, mm-hmm. it's almost pedestrian in this market, but, but still yeah. nice. And you got to look at the longer term, too, as you always remind us, John. Turning now to Binance, uh, the world's largest crypto exchange, announcing a $200 million strategic investment in Forbes this morning to help it go public via SPAC. Joining us now exclusively is Binance CEO Changpeng Zhao, one of the 20 wealthiest people in the world and as of now, the richest crypto billionaire. CZ, it is great to have you on the program again. Thanks for having me. So, CZ, walk us through why you did this deal and how it will help push the adoption of Web3. Sure. I think um, Forbes is a typical uh, Web 1.0 pre-web uh, company, and they've lasted through the generations. It's a 100-year-old company. And um, uh, most of the media businesses have, uh, had, had, have had a hard time transitioning from non-Web to Web 1 to Web 2, and we would really like to help them to transition to Web 3. Um, using blockchain cryptocurrencies. So that's really the main goal for us. Right. And it sort of fits into, I know we talked to you last time about Binance becoming less Wild West, more credibility, working with regulators. So I wonder why is traditional media the route here versus going direct, building it yourself with Web3 tools, which some might argue is more in line with those principles? Um, I think the media is just not is not the only industry we will look at. That, uh, it's not the only traditional industry we will look at. We will look at, at, at almost every sector, uh, traditional industries, and we'll try to make a few acquisitions, a, a few investments, and try to bring them into Web3 and into the blockchain world. And that will help adoption. And on the, regula- on the, on the regulation stuff, we are uh, we continuing our efforts to hire more people to be fully com- uh, to be fully compliant everywhere get licenses everywhere. So that hasn't changed. It doesn't, those two things are independent, at least in my mind, but uh, we are working hard to bring web 1.0 companies into web three. Um, is the independence of Forbes important to you? How do you guarantee that if you are while trying to sort of create the whole business model and create it as a web three platform? Uh, sure. Um, I think uh, Forbes will be continue to be fairly independent as all of our as any of our investments. We are a minority shareholder, even though we're, like, we are one of the largest shareholders, but no no one's a majority shareholder there. And we don't uh, we don't run any. I don't know how to run a news business. So um, we do, we want to help them with a with the blockchain side, uh, crypto side, and how to integrate that into that business. But the rest of the content is up to them. Um, we made similar acquisitions before coin market cap. People uh, at the at the time questioned if they're going to be independent, but so far I, I believe the results has been that they have been fairly independent. So yeah, we'll continue continue to let them run independently, and uh, we just want to have great people, great teams that uh, we want uh, uh, ex- special experts running their 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 own businesses. Uh, unless you're talking about using blockchain somehow for micropayments, I don't understand how this helps Forbes or its business model at all. I mean, on the editorial side, as you seem to allude to, journalism to some degree, I think, is necessarily centralized in the sense that you have to know the the philosophy and the ethics with which the organization is operating. And then on the business side, to some degree, you want to know who your readers and subscribers are and what they want in order to deliver the content to them. So the the idea of anonymity and decentralization, I don't see how it applies here. Do you have an, an idea? 
Yeah, I think there's many different possibilities. Um, I, I don't know exactly what will be done, um, but for example, a centralized business can use cryptocurrencies and can issue uh, NFTs, uh, utility tokens, incentive tokens. Um, they can, uh, other than, in addition to micropayments, you can do uh, read to earn. Um, you can you can have many. Uh, you can you can have uh, you can. Uh, just accepting Bitcoin uh, for subscriptions probably just enlarges the user base globally. Um, so there's many different things you can do, even as a centralized business. So, and um, so I think, yeah, there's many different possibilities. So why do this, say, with Forbes as opposed to going with uh, casual or mobile gaming or some other form of, say, entertainment versus journalism that involves high frequency, relatively low cost? Um, wh why pick this area? Um, I think we're picking every area that you mentioned. <laughs> so we are looking at gaming companies, we're looking at entertainment companies, et cetera. We're doing partnerships, we're doing investments, and we sometimes we even do acquisitions. So we want to work with in multiple sectors um, in the traditional industries and trying to bring, uh, uh, bring them into crypto or bring crypto to them. So um, yeah, so we're, we're not ruling out any of them. It's just that this is probably one of the earlier deals um, the, and this is Forbes mm -hmm. is you know, famous and has a very uh, strong brand um, uh, uh, presence, but we will do this in other sectors as well. Forbes is famous. It's also a little bit infamous at the moment, especially, you know, after it came out this week that one of the crypto hackers, uh, Heather Morgan, who was accused of trying to launder $4.5 billion in cryptocurrencies in a hack, as a contributor publishing more than 40 articles on the site. Um, is the aim here credibility? Why a Forbes instead of something else? Um, I think, well, um, I think basically um, uh, Forbes, uh, well, number one, it's like we look at a, a spectrum of uh, uh, different businesses and there's you no know, right fits um, and what's available. Not, not every news agency is open for investments. Um, so, um, so it depends a little bit on both. But I think I do think Forbes has an incredible brand uh, and it has very strong influence mm -hmm. and uh, its reputation is very strong just because they have one contributing a writer who happens to be a hacker uh, in in her private or in her hidden life. Um, mm -hmm. I can't really, yeah, I, I can't really comment on that. I, yeah. Um, CZ, I do want to talk about your business, Binance, and I want to ask you about spot transaction fees. You charge, um, I believe, one-tenth of a percent in the U.S. for transactions. Coinbase charges as much as five times that. Um, I wonder, are there other costs to your users? How do they know that they're getting the best price and the best spread from Binance? Yeah, so um, we adopted, yeah, so I think there's no other cost. Uh, in fact, um, for other crypto exchanges, uh, even when they charge a much higher fee, typically like five to 10X of ours, they still make a spread on top of that, uh, which is a hidden fee, but we actually don't do that. So, so Binance always strives to be the, yeah, so Binance always strives to be the lowest fee possible for, from our perspective. And then um, we just want more users to come in. We want the lowest friction for users right. to access crypto. But how do they know that they're getting the best price, that you're matching them up with the best price? Um, well, uh, from a user perspective, they may own up, they, like the easiest thing to do is for them to buy some crypto on Binance and versus another platform, see what prices they get mm -hmm. and uh, how much they spend and how much, how much coins they get. Um, that, like take $1,000 and try it on both platforms and you'll find out. Okay, and Changmeng, last um, question for you. What makes Binance's stablecoin, BUSD, different than some of the others out there like Tether and Circle? 
Um, so number one, Binance USD is actually not issued by Binance. It's issued by Paxos, which is a NYDFS um, uh, licensed ent uh, entity uh, uh, operating out of New York. So we don't issue it and we don't, we don't control it. Uh, we just help to promote it because you know, uh, we have a branding uh, collaboration. Um, I do believe, uh, I believe B BUSD is the most, uh, 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 most properly backed. Uh, their reserves are the highest uh, of, any crypto, uh, of any stable coin. Um, it's different from Tether. Tether is more or less like a black box. I never, no one uh, ever audited it, including myself. Right. I, I don't have any information that's not public. Y your website, USDC though, is kind of back. Yeah. Your website, though, says that BUSD is subject to regular audits, but they're actually attestations, right? Can you just clarify for us if they're audits or attestations? I'm not sure what I'm actually not sure of the technical detail, to be honest. Uh, um, so the audits would be done by Paxos uh, and they will be conducted with Paxos. So we don't really manage the reserves at all. Um, we just help to promote that uh, stable coin and um, uh, we lend our brand to it. And um, it does ha I, uh, it does have the strongest reserve backing. CZ, thank you so much for coming on to chat with us. We hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Still ahead this morning, the CEO of Sonos is going to join us. That stock is popping on earnings. We'll get more on Disney's blowout quarter. Uber is still halted for news. Tech Check is back in a moment. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bosa with John Fort and Carl Quintanilla. We continue to watch the Nasdaq currently lower by just less than half a percent as inflation and rising yields weigh on tech. Datadog, though, getting a nice pop after posting results while Zynga's share move is more muted. It completes an acquisition of its own ahead of a purported merger with Take-Two. Much more on Disney in just a moment. But first, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Good morning, Rahel. Hi, Deirdre. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. The annual inflation rate is at its highest level in four decades. The CPI jumped 7.5% over the last year, driven by an increase of six-tenths of a percent in January. Furniture prices in January also posted their biggest monthly rise in 55 years. Bond yields are surging after that inflation report. The 10-year Treasury yield has gone above 2%. That hasn't happened in two and a half years, and predictions for moves by the Federal Reserve also changing. Markets are now pricing in six quarter-point rate hikes by the end of the year. President Biden acknowledges that inflation has increased, but he points out that wages are going up even faster. He also says that inflation is expected to fall substantially later this year. And speaking of falling, jobless claims fell for a third week in a row. The drop to 223,000 new claims may show the labor market is moving past temporary disruptions caused by the Omicron variant. And Coca-Cola, one of the biggest gainers in the Dow. The beverage giant posted strong quarterly results on 
growing out-of-home sales. However, margins shrink and full-year profit guidance is only slightly above estimates. The Carl shares are up a little less than 2% right now. So back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Let's get back to Disney, of course, uh, now up 4% after yesterday's earnings report. Our next guest, uh, bullish on Disney, bet on the theme park recovery, and Disney did deliver, bouncing back to pre-pandemic levels. Joining us this morning at Bank of America is Jessica Reverlich. Jessica, what a delight to have you back. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. We were laughing a few moments ago about your Hulk smash line. Uh, you really were counting on the operating leverage at parks, and you say that the, the quarter ratified your view. It was a spectacular quarter. You know, we, we've, always, we've seen over the years that Disney has a ton of leverage in theme parks, but this was a real shock. We were projecting $1.3 billion in OI from theme parks. They came in almost double that, almost $2.5 billion. And when parks turn, they turn for years. So while our numbers went up, and I'm sure everybody on the street raised, raised estimates, this is the beginning of an earnings revision, an upward earnings, earnings revision curve. All right. You reiterate your buy. Uh, you keep 191. The, those who are less bullish on the street, at least this morning, seem to be uh, doing so by putting it in the context of the re-rating at Netflix. And I wonder, is that some kind of cloud or suppressant on the valuation for Disney overall? That's not our view. Our view is that the studios, namely Disney or Discovery, soon to be Warner Brothers Discovery, um, even Viacom, they have huge advantages, or your parent company, um, Comcast with NBCU, have huge advantages versus somebody like Netflix or any of the family, Apple, Facebook, um, Amazon. And that is that they have studios with deep library, content that consumers know, your brands that they know. They have um, production facilities in place, very strong production expertise, but they can use this content across multiple networks and platforms. So they can really leverage what they do for streaming elsewhere. Mm -hmm. What about the type of that content, Jessica? Uh, Bob Chapek gave an interview to our Julia Borston. You couldn't help but see the massive Encanto poster in his backdrop. Uh, I wonder, this has been such a huge hit, but does it and some of the stuff that's slated to be released in the second half of this year, does it move enough outside of Disney's core and help capture an audience that it doesn't have already? Well, on the conference call, and I'm sure Bob Jacob talks about it as well, they are expanding their um, content offerings. So it's more general entertainment, you know, whether it's the Beatles, they talked about Blackish, um, they will expand general entertainment. But within their core four brands, they're pretty much unmatched. You know, like Star Wars, Lucas, which is Lucas, Marvel, mm -hmm. they've created so many universes, so many new, um, you know, just environments. And, you know, we could talk about the metaverse we'll see what it is but they're, they're certainly uniquely positioned for that um and then pixar and, and disney i mean these are great brands with a lot of content and a lot of expertise jessica i think it was the b of a desk earlier in the week they were just thinking about where we are in the uh intellectual property value of franchises uh those values have been inflated as as the amazons and the apples of the world have have gotten into film and yet you're still working at least theatrically with sort of an old school model, mom and pop theater operators. Um, and I just wonder how you think that's going to evolve. If we're in for a wave of th theater closures, do we know if people will come back to theaters post COVID in ways that they were, that they were going uh, prior to the pandemic? Well, for certain films, obviously they will. Spider-Man was 
a, a humongous success by any measure, it, you know, pre-COVID or, or in this environment. Um, so we'll see what happens in the next year. I would think that the number of screens in the U.S. will probably shrink a bit. Um, but the thing, the, the ability of the studios now, with, they all have streaming platforms. They have the luxury of either going, you know, in the traditional windows and maybe shortening those windows, but benefiting in, in, in later, um, you know, having the promotions, which will help them in streaming, or they can go direct to consumer via streaming. So there, there are options for these films, you know, in any case, and Kanto is just a great example because Disney did create a new brand. And I know the West Side Story is coming finally to Disney Plus. <laughs> So there's, you know, there's, it's, it's just, there, there are a lot more platforms, a lot more distribution windows that they have, um, but the film business won't go away. And actually that's a really good point because film did not recover. Um, theme parks still have a long way to go in terms of capacity. International visitors are 20% roughly of the total and they're not back. Cruise ships really aren't back. So just think about all the things that will be coming over the next year or so. I was just thinking about West Side Story. Uh, March 2nd, uh, back to Disney Plus will be just in time for the Oscars. Uh, Jessica, it's always good to have you. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Come on. Some news out of Washington just now. The Senate passing a controversial tech bill that could have a big impact on big tech. Elon Moy is on Capitol Hill with that. Elon. Well, Deirdre, the Senate Judiciary Committee has just voted to advance the Earn It Act. This is a measure that would create a carve out from Big Tech's liability shield for material related to child sex abuse content. Now, this passed with strong support from both Republicans and Democrats, but the industry has fought hard against it. They say this is really a way to go after encryption and could actually erode user security and privacy down the road. There's also a vocal opponent among Democrats in Senate Ron Wyden. He said that this is a broken measure that won't actually solve the problem of this type of unsavory content being on the platforms. Again, the Senate Judiciary Committee, though, did vote to advance it. It would now move to the Senate floor, potentially packaged with all those other uh, bills that went after big tech companies that this committee has passed in recent weeks. Guys. Elon, thank you. Now we also want to hit some news out of California. State of California suing Tesla, the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, says it received hundreds of complaints from workers alleging racial discrimination and harassment. We'll continue to monitor any developments, bring you the details, we'll back in two. Uber shares are halted as the company holds its investor day, laying out some of its long-term metrics. We are getting them now as the investor day is live streamed. The company is, ex is saying that it wants to achieve adjusted EBITDA profitability of about $5 billion by fiscal year 2024. Remember that Uber just had its first adjusted EBITDA profitable quarter in fiscal 2021. It also expects gross bookings to grow to between $165 billion to $175 billion by fiscal year 2024. It also expects to be free cash flow positive before the end of this year. Um, so guys, we are getting this out. John, maybe they were listening to us. What is Uber? <laughs> They're trying to show themselves at least a few years from now as more profitable. I don't know what that means for the net income side of things and still growing at a healthy clip of more than 20%. We'll see if it is indeed a cash flow machine, D, yes. Uh, meanwhile, a Peloton stock 
losing a lot of weight over the past year, not in a good way, three-quarters of its value as sales have slowed. Uh, a firm has felt the impact as well. Amazon might now be the buy-now-pay-later company's biggest revenue driver. Kate Rooney looking ahead to a firm's results tonight. Kate? Hey, John. Yeah, the good news for a firm investors, Peloton's a lot less important than it used to be for a firm. Amazon and Shopify, meanwhile, appear to be picking up some of that slack. The lender has been slowly shaking off its reliance on Peloton. When a firm went public last year, Peloton accounted for about a third of revenue. And at the time, that was really a good thing. It sold a lot of bikes and subscriptions during the pandemic. But as we know, sales have slowed significantly. As of the third quarter, though, Peloton only made up about 10 percent of revenue for a firm. So that's coming down. Shopify, meanwhile, really has stepped up for a firm in a big way. It helped a firm grow to more than 100,000 merchants last year. The big story today when we get those numbers after the bell, how much will Amazon add to that picture? A firm's exclusive partnership with the e-commerce giant kicked off around the holiday shopping season last year. And Mizuho surveyed some of firm users who also shop on Amazon. Of those, more than half say that they reported already having checked out using a firm. Analyst Dan Dolev is among those predicting Amazon will unseat Peloton as a firm's biggest driver of sales. It also raised its GMV and price target as a result. A firm still not the biggest buy now, pay later provider globally by any means. You've got Klarna, the Swedish competitor in that space. For context, that one's got about a quarter of a million merchants on the platform. A firm stock has been one of the worst performers in fintech, which really has been beaten down this year. The other big headwind watching, uh, you got to watch into earnings, the CFPB investigation into buy now, pay later lending. We got to see what Max Levchin has to say on the call tonight uh, about that one. Back to you guys. Yeah, a lot of uh, the streets still counting on some good GMV guidance. We'll see what happens, uh, Kate. Thank you for that, uh, Kate Rooney. As we go to break, let's check on uh, Delivery Hero. Revenue's up 39 year on year, uh, better than Uber Eats' 34% gain, but the guidance is worrying some investors, bringing the rest of the sector down with it. Coming up, why Bill Miller says Meta is attractive at these levels in a moment. I think those stocks are, are all not particularly, you know, not particularly expensive. I mean, Meta trades at a lower enterprise value EBITDA than IBM does, and so and it's still expected to grow. And I think that, you know, down at these prices, I, I think that represents attractive value. We've we've owned it for a long time, so it's not it's not a new position for us. But we we certainly don't want to sell it down here. That was uh, Miller Value Partners Chair and CIO Bill Miller on the exchange yesterday. Still not a seller of Meta at these levels. He went on to add that Amazon's buybacks make that stock attractive. And looking at Alibaba, saying it falls into the value camp. Some of those names, especially Amazon D, uh, Bill Miller knows awfully well. Yeah, interesting, though, that Facebook is now being compared to an IBM. I don't know if that's a good or bad signal. After the break, Sonos beating Q1 estimates. Despite the company saying sales were held back by the chip shortage, CEO Patrick Spence is with us next. Tech Check is back in just two. Welcome back. Checking in on Sonos, the connected audio company, getting a volume boost after beating on the top and bottom lines for the fiscal first quarter. Stock's still down about 10% over the past 12 months. Joining us now, first on CNBC, Sonos CEO Patrick Spence. Patrick, uh, good to see you. Um, now, I, I got to start. You, you have a big product launch coming up soon. Your VP marketing has called it one of the most ambitious projects in your history. And please do come to talk to us about it first. I, I, I don't expect you to spill the beans today. But if you had one criticism of the wearable speakers on the market today, some call them headphones, what would it be? 
Great to see you, John. An incredible opening. Uh, how about we talk about this quarter first? Uh, we were able to successfully navigate, you know, really the most challenging supply chain environment that we've ever seen, that I, certainly we've ever seen in the last two decades, uh, and deliver more for our customers and exceed expectations, which was awesome. And, and you know, we we see strong consumer demand, um, you know, and our models working. So we actually uh, increased the midpoint of our guidance range for the year. Uh, we feel like things are on the right track and kind of the worst of the supply chain challenges are behind us. We have a super exciting product roadmap that I can't wait to share with you uh, when we're ready to release the new products. Well, then don't wait. Oh, you, when you're ready to release the new products. So you said you can't wait. And then you said that we got to wait. OK, I won't ask more about that. I do want to know more, though, about the supply chain stuff and how you've been working through that. Have these shortages uh, changed your overall approach to your supply chain and even product design. And, and I don't mean necessarily reactively, but as you've gone through this period, has there been any retooling, any rethinking of the components you use, the suppliers you use, the processes you use, so that uh, maybe your margins or your approach will be different from here on out even once we're through this period? Absolutely, John. So I think it's you know taught us that resilience is the key. And I, th I think our team has been very resilient. But probably one of the most important things is making sure that we have multiple suppliers for a variety of components. And we've increased the number of boards that we create for uh, um, and board variations inside our product. So consumers won't see this necessarily, but usually there'll be one or two boards that we'll have so that we can make sure that we're, we have enough supply and, and you know dual sourcing across the supply chain. But in some cases now we have seven. Uh, for a particular product. And so, you know, there's situations where we're going to build more of that resiliency and um, work with even more suppliers. You know, there's been some great investments happening um, in the United States around manufacturing, supply chain, all those things. So we're following that closely as well. Um, we definitely want to build more resilience in over time. I think the, uh, so there's some learnings from this, but I also think that the good news is we really feel like the worst is behind us. There's certainly still challenges as we go through this year, but it's getting better uh, and the consumer remains strong. Hmm. Patrick, good morning. It's Deirdre. Great to have you on. I wonder if you could give us an update on your relationship with Google after patent infringement lawsuits, disputes. Do you feel uh, that that has been adequately settled? Are they still copying your technology? And would your sales longer term financial outlook look different? Yeah, hey, um, you know, uh, so on January 6th, um, we were vindicated in the uh, ITC, and so we won an injunction against Google. And so, you know, 60 days later, so March 6th, um, they have a decision to make. Either they license the technology from us, either they stop selling the products that infringe, which are all their smart speaker products, um, or they could uh, remove the technology from those products and ship an even more inferior product. So th those are their options. Um, we remain, you know, we have a relationship with them. Uh, obviously, we support Google Assistant, YouTube Music, some of those things. Um, but they have a decision to make in terms of what they want to do. Mm. Um, we you know, won definitively in the ITC, which mm -hmm. shows the power of our intellectual property and really just reinforces the fact that we invented the smart speaker category. Yeah. So, Patrick, do you expect them to play ball going forward? Do you think that the royalties that they could potentially choose to pay you uh, will sort of be substantial material for your bottom line? Um, we'll we'll see. Uh, you know what they want to do. Uh, we do have people that are licensing our technology. That's always the first you know uh, option, and that's probably the best thing to do. That's the normal thing in the tech industry. But who knows what they want to do at this point? Patrick, finally, are you satisfied with the incentive to upgrade that your very loyal customer base has at this point? 
based on the, the age of perhaps some of the speakers that are still in use, which you know, is a good thing and a bad thing, uh, and the, the new products that you're coming out with that your loyal base does appear to be picking up uh, at a nice clip according to your earnings results. Yeah, you know, John, we're seeing a couple of things, right? So I think the power of this auto story is the model. We're not a one and done product. Uh, people come in, they buy one, they start with one, they buy more over time. In fact, last year, 45% of our sales came from existing customers adding another product to their Sonos system. And we're up to an average of three products uh, per customer, which is awesome. And then they tell their friends and family, hey, you should get Sonos. And so you know that, that creates this flywheel with new homes as well. And so that's the thing that really powers our business. That's why we're resilient um, kind of in any you know, conditions and on an ongoing basis and why we're looking at our 17th straight year of, of growth. Um, and so as we think about those existing customers, we certainly think about how we take you know, the homes that have the average of three today to in the future, four to six. And so we bring out products that will address our existing customers and really interest them in, in new solutions and kind of new products. And then we as well think about which products are going to appeal to new customers we don't reach today because we're only at the beginning here. We, we, you know, we'll do $2 billion in revenue this year. That's in a market of global audio sales, which are about $89 billion a year. So we have a ton of opportunity ahead. Uh, we're just getting started. All right, Patrick Spence, looking forward to those product announcements, a headphones, I mean a head, uh, and we'll, we'll wait to see what they are. Uh, the CEO of Sonos, thank you. Thank you. Meantime, we got Uber back open for trade. Uh, stock's now down 5% on some of those incremental headlines. We'll talk a bit about why it was halted in the first place after a break. Volatile session for Uber. Uh, shares were up on earnings and then they were down on Investor Day. They were lowered by more than 5% after trading resumed just a few moments ago. Paired some of those losses down 1% now, guys. As investors digest what some of these long-term goals mean, the profitability and the gross bookings on the surface look good, but sort of at what cost, I think, is what investors are trying to figure out now. What does it mean for prices? Um, one of their executives said that their biggest lever is to, you know, structurally bring down prices. So what does that mean for that profitability that investors have been looking for. Yeah, it does appear that the headline cash flow positive by Q4 of 2022 uh, is uh, what's on the tape right now. One, one reason why the shares may be heading a bit lower. One more thing, a uh, quick programming note before we go to break uh, or to the half. We're live at the Super Bowl tomorrow all day, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. And through Tech Check, we'll talk about ratings, media deals, obviously all of the off the field controversy that's in focus ahead of Sunday's uh, big game. Uh, it's a huge, obviously, media event. The biggest of the year and we'll talk about what it means for both uh, sports and the world of business hope you look uh, join us for that along with uh, a firm and expedia tonight you've been listening to cnbc's tech check you can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m eastern people today can spend half their lives over 50 so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.